Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. My name is Father Peter Musset, and we are uh, so delighted that you would join us for an adventure into sacred scripture, followed by some companionship and absurd 80s references. <laughs> that's, that's a very strict uh, chronological ordering of how we're going to do this. I don't know if I want to be tied to that. You know, um, you know, this is this is how it is, though. Usually like, we do gonna... the fellowship and, and tomfoolery first, and then we do the scriptural, whatever you, you say. You know, I, I love I love <clears throat> the fact that we um, we have found our voices. We're not very <clears throat> formal because like you could hear in a comparison what it would sound like if we were a very formalized uh, individuals uh, attempting to explore extrapolate into extrapolate an eisegesis for the exegesis that's not good eisegesis is bad dude you know but isotoner gloves are great okay that's fair (laughs) i've got no retort to that eisegesis bad isotoner good good yes um peter 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 the apostle has a good exegesis today he does he's he uh he he's deciding to go for it yep I and I like it. I like how he's doing it. He's um, doing it, man. Yeah. So how? Uh, so all of you who are listening to the podcast, how are you guys doing today? Fine. We're doing okay, Father Peter. How are you? Good. How's it feel to um, be uh, locked in your houses? Do you have cabin fever yet? No, we're okay. Some of us are doing better than others, but we're a mixed <laughs> bag. We're a diverse group of people. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I have to yeah, I have man. to give an apology. Uh oh. Um, I got What'd a, you do? Well, I got a very upset message, and I'm I'm assuming that there's a little tongue in cheek, but uh, but maybe this person was just flat out mad at me. <laughs> I, com- <laughs> oh, no. I compared you to George Costanza on the podcast last week from Seinfeld because sometimes people caricature you as Kramer, and I was like, you're more like George, and someone was like, George is a George is terrible. How dare you compare Father Peter to George Costanza? He's the worst human being ever. <laughs> Just, sorry. Oh wow. So sorry if I offended you or anyone else. You are not really George Costanza. You're probably more of a Jerry than anything else. Yeah, I've. You're a Jerry. Identify- oh, you know what you are. Do you remember the episode? What? There was an episode where Jerry has to move into Kramer's apartment when there's like the Kenny Rogers Roasters sign is outside. You remember? And it turns Jerry into Kramer and Kramer into Jerry. Maybe you live somewhere in there. Oh, right. So I just wanted to offer that and sorry for the uh, sorry for the ill-fated comparison. It was just it was just a joke. You are no George. Hey, and and. And audience, thanks for defending me to the evil <laughs> yeah. Scott Powell. Yeah, 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 that's fair. Yeah, that, that's, that's reasonable. Um, I also want to just thank reasonable. everybody for, um, it's just fun. Scott's not evil. Oh, Somebody's going to send me a bad message now saying, Scott's not evil. Scott has helped me up It is so much in my no, life. I don't know about Scott, that. I love we'll you. See. We'll see if that's true. That's, just you kidding. are. You're good. You're good peoples, bro. You're good pizza. Thanks, man. So are you. Um, I, but I just want to thank all of you guys for, for listening in this time and our, our numbers are climbing and it's really fun to see all of you guys tuning in and I've been getting a lot more just really positive feedback and messages from folks and it's just been fun um, to see the level of engagement that you guys are, are, are kind of hanging with us in this. So this, it's really fun to know that you guys are there and to hear from you and, 
and we just love it. So please stay connected with us. Stay connected to Thomas Center, our ministry back in Boulder. Um, but we're just thankful for you guys being a part of it. We're in the third Sunday of Easter. That we are. El, el trece? Mm-hmm. Um, nope. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Our first reading for this third Sunday of Easter is coming from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 14, and then jumping to 22 through 33. Awesome. Yep. That was, uh, dude, they're sharpening the axe. Okay. And then our responsorial Psalm. (laughs) Yes. Um, dude. uh, Okay. This is the problem is that, okay. It's Psalm 16, um, with the response coming from 11 a, um, with the verses one through two, five and seven through 11, but I don't know what they are in their strophes. So there you go. I just know this is, this is why I always start for the first reason, because I'm so stressed to try to tell you what the Psalm is. Okay. Yeah. I, I, as you said it, I realized, I don't know if I've ever heard you say it before. I mean, I'm sure I have, but yeah, that seven was years of this, man. You've heard me say it. <laughs> I don't know. You're always quick on that first reading, but today you dropped the ball. Yeah, man, because I'm hardcore. Our second reading is from First Peter chapter one, verse seventeen through twenty-one. And our gospel. You, this is the why you did this is because um, I wrote my thesis on this gospel. It's the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's a good one. Luke chapter twenty-four, verses thirteen to thirty-five. Yeah, it is a good one. There is a lot of um, meat in that story. <laughs> All right, can I say a word about um, the structure of the readings during the Easter season? Why, yes, please. This is, this is just kind of cool, just kind of so everyone knows, just sort of the church has a very specific way that we think through the story of what happened at Easter and how the church is sort of built from there, which is, it, it, there's kind of a cool pattern that the church uses, right? So Every Easter, regardless of the liturgical year, we always have the reading of um, the disciples running to the empty tomb. It's always the gospel for Easter Sunday, which I think is kind of cool, right? Um, The second Sunday of Easter, and I didn't know this. I actually just learned this recently from uh, a guy named John Bergsman, a great biblical scholar, a great Catholic guy. Um, But every Easter Sunday, and you probably knew this, I just never really thought about it, but every Sunday, every Easter Sunday, that's always the gospel. Every second Sunday of Easter... It's the appearance of the risen Lord to the apostles and to Thomas, doubting Thomas in the upper room. And then the third yep. Sunday of Easter is is it rotates between one of the other really well-known appearances of Jesus. So either the road to Emmaus, which is this year, um, the evening appearance to the disciples, which is the same thing as the, the upper room with Thomas, or the appearance to the apostles in Galilee and John. So it rotates through those things. And then the fourth Sunday of Easter is always the exact midpoint of the Easter season. And that the exact halfway point next week, we'll hear about Jesus as the good shepherd. And then following that, the gospel readings are always taken from um, the discourse of the Last Supper from John as this way of preparing both the disciples and then the rest of us for the giving of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the A's of the church at Pentecost. But I, I share that just because I was reading that and I, th- I thought it was really cool. I'd never realized there was such an intricate structure for and, and pedagogy for how the church is laying out all the gospel readings for the, the whole of the Easter season. So I just, I throw that out because I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, dude, I like it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So um, that being said, what is a little, so that's really cool, but I, I, I guess part of the reason I say that is it was dealing with my own frustration, and it's not really frustration, 
But the first reading is a little, it's not frustrating. Yeah, maybe it's frustrating. It's not bad. But the, the bouncing around chronologically is always a little hard for me. And I think you even expressed this last week, right? Because the first reading always kind of takes us in this weird ordering of these events that are happening out of order. And, you know, so last week we actually talked about something that happened after Pentecost, right? And now we're back in kind of Pentecost mode this week. We, we've been in Acts of the Apostles um, for all of these weeks of Easter for our first reading, right? And so this right. week we're thrown, and, and again, it's, it's where the chronology gets a little confusing because when you get to the gospel, we're still, we're literally still on Easter Sunday. It's still the day of the resurrection when everyone's still trying to figure out what on earth is going on. But sort of in a backwards way, our first reading is the explanation of the church understanding what's going on and explaining to the world what's happening. And so in a certain sense, the whole scheme of the readings is in the sense of hindsight, right? Here is what we right. know, and here is us looking back on when we were still figuring it out, in a certain sense. And there's there's kind of a beauty to that structure. So our first reading, yeah, go for it. I, I mean, and, and we're gonna get into the reading. Um, it's funny because the part of the thing that I was seeing today that, that could have been done, but was decided not to be done, is when we, <laughs> when we skipped forward, because we go from 14 to 22. Right. Um, you know, the, 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 there is a, the, in the, in the midst of it is actually the end of days. There's a, wow. there's a discourse that s- starts it off that, that actually tells us about like a, a, a real apocalyptic eschatological parousia, um, like uh, exposition, which is, um, which is kind of beautiful because in a real way we're, we're living in a new epoch. Well, there's a, um, this, and there's a very specific reason the church skips over that this week. Why? Um, it, it's specifically because that, so you're right, everything you're saying, this is where the scriptures become like the layers of an onion and there's so many layers of different meaning. But one of this, so, okay, so this is Peter's okay. speech at Pentecost, right? When the disciples right. receive the Holy Spirit, they begin speaking in tongues um, right before the 3,000 are baptized, right? He gives his big homily to all of the people who are gathered from all the nations for the Pentecost feast. And in this big sermon, Peter basically gives an exegesis, so an explanation, unpacking, interpretation of the scriptures about two pieces of scripture. The first piece of scripture that he, um, that he interprets is from Joel, which is what you're talking about. And Joel has these prophecies about the end of days and this eschatological vision. And the reason the church, at least for this week, skips it is because it's believed that that really is speaking about Pentecost itself. This moment of this outpouring, it talks about the outpouring of the Spirit, the prophesying. He's Upon sho- all flesh. Yes, the showing of the yeah, wonders and the signs. Visions and dreams. Absolutely. That is the moment of Pentecost, which ushers in the new era, this new epoch of the church. And so the church is basically saying for this week, hey, let's hold off on that one because we still have a few more weeks before we get there. We'll come back to this line of thinking. So instead, we jump ahead to a more sort of baseline interpretation of what the resurrection actually was and how it fulfills certain other things. So the other thing that Peter gives um, an exegesis on is this psalm, which happens to be our responsorial psalm, not coincidentally, but he gives an explanation of Psalm 16. And Psalm 16, apparently in the time of Jesus, was a psalm that was incredibly confusing to people. And people didn't, literally didn't know what to do with this psalm. And, and I'm really struck by this fact that Peter is, he's this relatively uneducated fisherman 
from the country, this country bumpkin who's now in the big city, explaining and interpreting a psalm that has puzzled and confounded the greatest rabbis of his day for centuries. And he gives the explanation that leads everyone to be like, that's it. You've explained it. Baptize us, man. Which is this really, it's really beautiful moment of Jesus, God using the least likely candidate to enlighten the minds of even the learned to this thing, which is, it's really beautiful. And so, it's like people listening to the lanky guys. It is like saying, well, these idiots, I can't believe they actually had an insight. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I'm included in that, bro. Yeah, I know. Uh, no, you're not. You're you're wise. The wise Father Peter. Dude, you're the wise Scott Powell. Um, but where are we? So, yeah, so we get this this first line. And, and the church um, in the readings, they, they give sort of the intro, right? Peter stood up and addressed the with the eleven, lifted up his voice, addressed them, and said, Men of Judea and all of you who dwell in Jerusalem. The, I, the, um, I need to go back toward manuscripts, but for some reason, the um, New American Bible, which is what we read from Mass... Has a, uh, it, it gives two different categories of people. First of all, you who are Jews staying in Jerusalem, and then you who are Israelites. Um, the other, every other translation that I look to actually doesn't have that distinction, but for some reason, New American Bible does. I don't know what the manuscript tradition that actually brings us that is, but I think it's an important point because as the moment of Pentecost begins, Peter isn't just speaking to the Jewish people who are gathered there. He's speaking to all of Israel. And the ones we call Jews, that term actually comes from who are the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah, who were sort of left after the exiles and after the Babylonians came and destroyed everything. The Israelites are a much broader category than that. And it's the other tribes of Israel, most of which have been scattered to the four winds when they were attacked by Assyria. And so Peter is saying, this isn't just for this fraction of Israel, it's for all of Israel. And if it's for all of Israel, it means it's for the whole earth because that's where Israel has been scattered to in a certain sense. So Peter is enlarging the message or at least the 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 pool that this message is to go to yeah i don't know why the 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 because it's actually not the nab it's the nab um lectionary so the lectionary is based upon the nab but it's not even even in the nab they don't go that far interesting yeah and i can't i just i didn't have time to dig far enough in because i can't find it anywhere else or in any other translation (laughs) i actually think it's cool i wish i i hope it is there somewhere because i like it but i can't find it anywhere else (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, the modified New American for the lectionary d- does say Jews, but actually the Greek says Israelati, which is the Israelite. I thought it was Judeo. Oh, okay, cool. So it's it says Israel. Cool. So it's Israelite, cool. not Jew. The, the Jews is the is the um is the variation, not the standard. Cool. Okay, that that's very strange. But I that's... have all the resources in front of me. I love it, man. All right, so yeah. he's so he's addressing everyone. In other words, that's that's the point, right? Um, right? Now, what he does is he quotes Psalm 16, which is believed to be the psalm from David, and he says, "As David said, and and here's what he well before we get there, he he says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, oh, I see what he does. Oh, I see what the reading's doing. It's just con- combining those two verses. Sorry, uh, yeah, of course it has both. Verse 22 is the men of Israel. Okay." 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know. How do they know? Because everybody heard about what happened back on Easter Sunday. I'm sorry, on on, uh, Good Friday. Everybody heard this story. It is spread by this point. Let's let's just say over the weekend. Over the weekend. That's fair. Which was was now 50 days ago. According to when right. Peter is speaking. So there's time. This is like a month and a half. It's basically the, the, the period of the quarantine so far or something like that, right? That people have had time. They've probably gone home. They've come back for the Feast of Pentecost. But everyone's probably, it's still buzz, right? People are still talking about this event. And he says, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan, which is Peter basically saying, this was not an accident. This was not something that just, oh, geez, what happened? Jesus was turned over to the enemies. No, this was all within the will of God. It is not outside of his plan that these things took place. But he says it was according to the, and this is what I, I wanted to get to, to, two quick words. According to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And I went back and I peeked at what the, the Greek word for foreknowledge is. Do you have any idea okay. what, the word, what this word is? It's actually kind of cool, I thought. Um, the foreknowledge, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I can look it up, but I don't know. It is the Greek word. Well, you know what knowledge is in Greek, right? It's the word gnosis, right? So gnosis is yes. stuff. So, um, and the, the, the prefix for before would be pro. So literally the word is the prognosis, which I was just struck oh, yeah. by that kind of in a time of, of national health crisis, <laughs> that what Peter is literally saying is that Jesus was delivered up, not as an accident, something that God fully knew and was in full control over and it was literally the prognosis of God to deal with the unhealth of the world. This was the prognosis that he gave. Now I know I'm kind of playing with words a little bit, but I was just struck by I always love it when Greek words are literally the same as something we find in English. And this is just a case of that, which I, I just find fascinating that the cross as the prognosis for the world's ills. Yeah, which is interesting when you actually think about that in medical terms, something to say, oh, I have prognosis. I know it's common for you. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, uh, which is a really, which oftentimes when we're d- dealing with health issues, we, we don't know. Yeah, um, absolutely. We ourselves, but then somebody else does. It's really, that's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting thing. But, but another way that they translate the prognosis is destiny. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen that. Which is a little, which is a little bit more intense versus foreknowledge, and, and I mean, it has very different uh, intensity in in, uh, in that sense. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I like the fact that the 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 the, the 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 cross is is the result. It's the it's the actually it's 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 what comes because of sin. Uh, yeah, sin and yeah. and the the whole thing that's and the plan and the prognosis of god yeah wow. isn't that kind of cool i was just struck by that yeah. so i want to throw it out and so yeah. because of this plan and prognosis this destiny it says you killed using lawless men to crucify and i was struck by the term lawless men and i kind of went and tried to see what other people interpreted that as and you know some are like oh he just means wicked men But I I was thinking what he really means by that. I mean, who crucifies Jesus? Well, it's the Romans who actually do the dirty work that the Jewish leaders, you know, pawn off on them. And there's so much corruption on every level. But when when Peter says he used lawless men to crucify him, 
That's literal. I mean, they don't have the Torah. They didn't have access to the Torah of God, the law of God, because it was given to Israel and Israel did a bad job of, in a certain sense, evangelizing the rest of the world and sharing the law of God with the rest. And so as a result, ones who did not have the law were left with this, with this duty. I don't know. They, they were in the position that, that they actually did this. I don't know, and, and I don't think there's much mileage there, but I was just sort of struck by what Peter is actually saying because he, lawless men, people who were outside of the Torah, were fundamental in performing this crucifixion. And then as on the other side of it, the ones who were without the law, the Gentiles, the outsiders, the non-Torah people were also the ones to be welcomed back in despite this and maybe because of it. I don't, I don't know. I, there's not too much mileage there, but I was just kind of struck by that terminology in the universality of what Peter's saying here. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but then, so then he gets to David and he, he quotes Psalm 16, which has always been believed to be a psalm written by David. And it's, you know, people debate when David wrote this. It's about basically, um, what does he say? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced forever. My flesh will dwell in hope. So this is a psalm all about being in danger and being in threat of death and trusting and believing that God will actually bring me out of this with total trust. So it's often believed that maybe David penned this either during or reflecting back on the time when Saul King Saul was chasing him through the wilderness and he was on the run for his life, even though he knew he was the rightful king and he was the one that God had chose and this evil king was chasing him and he's really scared, but he's putting his trust in God, knowing you're going to pull me out of this. With all of my faith and with all of my trust, I put myself in you. This is what the whole responsorial psalm is all about. But then he goes on and it says, for you will not Abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So that's good enough. But the problem is when Peter's speaking to Jews who, you know, again, are believing that the Psalms are largely written by David. And so Psalm 16 has always been this kind of confusing Psalm for the interpreters because David says, you'll not abandon my soul to death. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But everybody knows that David died. They're actually nearby what was believed to be David's tomb. Josephus writes about it being in Jerusalem. And his body was presumably in that tomb, literally corrupting. So the question is, how do you hold to the faithfulness of the scriptures when David himself says, I know you won't let me see death, and I know you won't let my body see corruption, when David's dead and his body is corrupting? And literally, Jewish scholars debated and wrestled with this passage because they're like, well, what on earth is David saying unless he's actually speaking about someone else? Unless the first person is not David, but David is prophetically putting these words into the mouth of another. And Peter then steps into this, literally, this really high-level scholarly debate. He's like, here's the answer. It's Jesus. David was writing about Jesus. Jesus was the prophet and David was prophetically speaking about all these things that are happening. Boom, there, I've interpreted your scriptures for you. Which is this really kind of cool moment where he's like, that's what it means. And everyone's like, oh, you've just explained this huge problem and all these things in the scriptures to us. And it's this, it's this really beautiful interpretive lens for understanding the whole Old Testament. J Peter is giving us the first steps of the interpretive pedagogy that the church is going to use to understand the whole of the Bible. And as somebody who is really interested in studying this stuff, I just think this is a really, really cool moment. 
I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what well, it's the same, and that's actually going to lead us in, in a profound way into the gospel that we're getting the seeds that that, yes. that God is actually giving, the the yeah. method by which everybody's going to be able to open up, like what we do here mm. uh, for the rest of time. But the, the but <laughs> oh, you, Jesus, not us. Yeah, Peter, even. Yeah, yeah. In Peter and Jesus, better than, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> just that's, a, that's, that's just the truth. I yeah. mean, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, man. Like, and that, that's actually, that, and so that's is what, what we're being, that's what we're being built up in, in this particular time is, to, yeah. is that, is that we're taking all of this substance that's been handed on. And then Peter's saying, here, I'm going to let, I'm going to give you a key to this because that's his but, job. But he's doing the, the same thing, standing on the shoulders of giants. That's what I'm saying oh, is yeah. that he's taking, he's giving us a key on how to unlock what was before, what's in him, what's yes. in Christ, wh- and then what's going to be in our lives, the, which is the best. Absolutely right. And again, I, I, I like thinking of, and we don't know, but I like imagining, as, as one of the strains of tradition says, that David wrote these words, not just reflecting back on these hard times, but what if he actually wrote it while he was in the desert hiding in a cave, fearful for his life because Saul had an army trying to kill him. And even in that moment saying, no, but I know you, I trust you, and I know that you will not let this happen. And I know even more than that well, that you're going to just... do even greater. He just came out of um, the uh, being locked in the upper room for nine days. This is Pentecost. They just did a. They just did a. Good point. Uh, like so. Good yes, point. he actually do, he does know. And actually, oh no, I meant uh, David. A, I meant David. David writing it in the in the hiddenness of fearing for his life. Right, and then I'm saying that Peter, Peter is too. That's actually a really good insight because Peter's really in a similar. He's maybe in the same position as David. So how do then, you? I mean, this then, is. Then he goes to the foot of the, then he goes to the temple mount and goes for it. And you know, wh- what does David do? He goes to the anointed and goes for it. It's hard to really understand and interpret scripture until you're able to see yourself in it, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing something I heard Scott Hahn say once, but the best way I think into scripture is when we're finally able to see ourselves. And I love that insight that you just gave of, Maybe this is the moment that Peter, maybe he was, he picked up, you know, the scriptures and he was, he was reading and reflecting on the Psalms, which he probably would have memorized. And he's like, oh, that's where I, I'm literally there right now. David's writing this afraid for his life on the run, fearing for all these things that are going to happen. I feel the exact same way. And then the spirit comes and then it enlightens him. And he's like, oh, I get it now. I get what David was feeling. And now I get what David was saying. And now I have no choice but to go and proclaim it. Because I find myself right. in the story. Right. And, cool. and this is the thing is, is that sometimes we look at the speeches in, in Acts and, and in the Old Testament that somehow it all just spontaneously right. arose in this moment. Right. But then in, in reality, no, this is actually coming upon three years of reflection by being with the word and listening to him preach and teach Absolutely. everybody. It, it comes from the last 50 days uh, when he's he they've been in the upper room yeah. studying, talking, considering, going through it. I mean, it's like podcasts all day long, every day, oh, like what we're doing here. Lord help us. And, there, 
and they're they're like they're, they're just reflecting and they're talking about David and the psalm and they're praying him and then mm. all of a sudden somebody's like dude did you just hear that and he's going there I mean like yeah. he's like I, I actually just don't I think that it's a gift for the whole community that's flowing from the whole community that then you have certain minds that then as he's talking and as he's preaching in front of everybody, the Holy Spirit's being given to him and he's making even greater connections in front of everybody because that's how the Holy Spirit likes to do it and for me yeah. in preaching, how he likes to do it for us in the podcast, for you in teaching, for us as we're like as we're living this out. He likes to give it as we're actually testifying with our lives and yeah. testifying through the use of our reason. It's the best. And that's why what we're seeing, it's not just a key to unlock the Old Testament, but it's how we do it. It's like, be willing give of yourself, give of the insight that you're having, yeah. and more will be given, pouring over in your lap than the point on where people will be reflecting upon it after you're dead. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Which I think actually is a great lead into First Peter, the second reading. Right, because we did them both. Yeah, I, I think we've covered um, Psalm 16, if, uh, yeah. unless you have something I'm just else. making it explicit for the home listening audience. You're right, which is everybody, because we're all second home. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but but that I do think that's a, a great lead into First Peter. So we talked a little bit last week. The thing that really resonated I do. With, what? I think that that's a good lead into Peter. You just said that about me. I did. <laughs> yeah, you said you think this is a good lead into Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm assuming you do. I'm presuming upon your goodwill. Oh, I don't know the, why hey I said man, that. I didn't mean to say. I, that. I, it's because um, it's because. Uh, the believers were of one heart and of one uh, mind. I was and just so... about to say that. I was literally about to say that. Talk about meta. <laughs> that, that, whoa, man. <laughs> uh, talking about, okay, anyway. Um, first Peter. So last week we talked about, at least what, what really resonated with me was this idea that First Peter begins as this epistle from the Pope. Again, older, further you know, in his life, um, had time to reflect on things, had time to lead, do all this stuff. And now he's writing to a community that he calls the chosen exiles, right? These people who have been exiled, probably persecuted somewhere. Um, I can't remember where they are. Where are they? They're in the Anatolian Peninsula, right? And he's writing to these people who've sort of been exiled in a certain way in this diaspora. And he talks about them being chosen to be exiled. Not just that they happen to be chosen people in exile, but that God has actually deemed them to be in this position. And the thing that's now resonating with me is that, well, what, what, he, what he says, where we pick it up, he says, Beloved, if you invoke his father, this really knocked my socks off this morning. This was, this was the one that, um, that really gave me some mileage. He says, Beloved, if you invoke as father him who judges impartially according to each one's work. So in other words, if you really believe in God, the God that we preach, then conduct yourselves with reverence during your time of sojourning. And you can interpret sojourning as exile because that's already how he addressed them. Conduct yourself with reverence during your time of sojourning. And he goes on to basically explain what the gospel is and why the gospel feeds into this attitude. But what, what are we talking about so far? We're talking about David in an exile. Sojourning sounds like such a nice word. It sounds like he's on a pilgrimage, right? David is not just sojourning. He's exiled from his city. He is the chosen king, and he's on the run from someone who wants to steal his life and kill him. Peter is not like on a little retreat pilgrimage in his room. He's hiding, terrified, doors locked, because he thinks people are going to kill him, and probably rightly so. And so what Peter is saying now, probably reflect, I'm sure that's got to be part of the image in his mind. During your exile, 
to you who I'm writing. To, during your sojourning that God has deemed this necessary, how are you going to approach this time? How are you going to act? How are you going to conduct yourself? Are you going to be, and I, this is what I kept hearing in myself and I kept hearing in, you know, um, what I'm sort of seeing around me. I was, I was, I was doing a Bible study with some of our staff yesterday and we were just having a discussion and, and I was reflecting the other day on how in front of people, I don't know if this is your experience or not, but, but when Lent started and we were all kind of exiled from our churches and from our communities and everything else, there was, I think a lot of us were like, oh, it's Lent and we're going to really go into Lent this year because it's exile and quarantine and this feels super Lenty. And then Easter happened. And it's snow. We got dumped on with snow here in Boulder, and it was dark. And we're like, oh, and we're still stuck in quarantine. There was this like kind of expectation, like everything's going to get awesome then at Easter. And it didn't. And, you know, the weather's beautiful today, but, I mean, we're still kind of stuck here. And we don't know exactly how this is all going to play out. And, and I was just reflecting, at least for myself, on how easy it is to want to strive for holiness when it feels like everybody else is doing it and it feels like a cool, interesting thing to do. Like, oh, it's Lent, it's quarantine. Yeah, I'm going to totally use this time. But it's a whole nother thing when you really genuinely start to get sick of it. And you're like, I'm done with this. And that's obviously the moment that sanctification actually begins. Because it's one thing to try to act holy when it feels really good. But then it's a whole nother thing when you're like, okay, I'm, I'm really tired of this now. I don't want to be sojourning anymore. I don't really want to be exiled. I really don't want this terrifying unknowing of what the future holds. I'm, I'm kind of done with that now. And that's, I think, where Peter steps in. He's like, all right, so here's the question. How will you conduct yourselves in that moment? Are you going to give in to griping? Are you going to give in to complaining like I am want to do? Are you going to obsess over the news like I want to do? Or are you going to conduct yourself with reverence? And this is going to, this might be weird. I don't know. But um, here's the image that I've been playing with. I, my wife and I watched um, that movie, the Mr. Rogers movie last night. I don't know if you saw that, the Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Man, that's one of the most intense, that's one of the most (laughs) intense emotionally. Like when they, when he starts and he's opening up the little curtains at the very first scene and he's like, we're going to talk about our friend. He's been hurt. And you're like, Uh. oh my goodness, what in the, (laughs) what in the heck are we, what? I I was like, I thought I was in, but like, then you realize, no dude, that's always been the vibe of Mr. Rogers, dude, is like, he went to the depths, man. Well, and that's the thing. And that's what, what's really stuck with me. And, you know, there's the uh, this, this great guy, but there's this theme, and I actually went back and read the article in Esquire that the movie is based on in real life. And um, one of the things that really stuck out there was there was a line where he's the, the main character is asking Mr. Rogers' wife, he's like, so is he a saint? You know, is he like a, this amazing person? And she's like, no, he's not a saint. It's, if you say he's a saint, it makes it sound like it's unattainable. He works really hard at this. And I went back and I just did some more reading on some of those articles and stuff, and they, they talk about. How un- I mean, Mr. Rogers, you know, we all have this image of him, but he sounds like he was one of the most disciplined human beings who ever lived. Like he woke up every day at 5 a.m. He prayed for every single person that he had encountered. He went on a swim, swam hard. He, you know, he, he literally had trained and disciplined himself to what? To approach the world and people around him with reverence, which is your whole thing, Father Peter. It's so much of what you've taught me about life is that he approached everyone around him with reverence, not because he's just this amazing guy, but he was disciplined enough to do that. And I read, I think it was in the article, this is the, this is the line that stuck with me, and I can't remember where, the, I don't think it was in the movie, I think it was the article, but it gave the, the comparison between Superman and Batman. And if you consider someone like a Superman, 
Superman was from another planet, right? He was a superhero with all these magical abilities from someplace totally distant from us. Unattainable. I can never be a Superman. Batman was just a dude who had a bunch of really cool tools that he learned how to use well. He didn't have superpowers. He was just a guy who had a bunch of tools at his disposal that he disciplined himself to use well. And I think that was, that was in the article describing Mr. Rogers. Like, it wasn't just that he's some superhero from a distant planet that's completely unattainable. This is a guy who disciplined himself to look at the world around him with reverence. And so part of what my challenge to myself has been in these days is, can I actually approach this time with reverence? Even when I'm getting stir crazy, even when it's not fun anymore, and the fun cute memes are wearing out on social media, right? And it's, it's kind of getting real, and I don't want to do it anymore. That's the moment. Can I approach that moment with reverence? Because that's what Peter's talking about. And I'm sure he's saying it back to himself. He's like, I remember that moment for me. For 50 days, I was in this exile of terror. And now I'm looking back at what reverence actually meant. And I'm looking back at David. And I'm interpreting that for myself. And I see what Jesus was doing. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but that's what I've been. That's yeah. what I took from this. Well, I think that that's actually a good, decent lead into the um, uh, gospel of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. All right, go because, for it. Because, well, because because like what happens, and and this is actually something that's been a really striking me just in, in our in our reflections together, uh, especially around Thomas Didymus, and, and what's been really in my soul is as we we've been looking at the scriptures in this time of of um hunkering down uh we i don't hear that enough uh, you yeah. know we hear like you know social distancing quarantine whatever hunkering down hunkering down so um so what what i've been noticing is that the reverence uh, and i define it in this way is um allowing the space for being to reveal itself allowing the space for being to reveal itself. And the reason why you use being is it's a, it's a philosophical metaphysical term, meaning that, you know, like we talk about the four harmonies, you talk about God, you talk about self, neighbor, and creation. So, so all those things that are, and yeah. we can include angels in that, but we don't normally talk to angels um, unless um, that you're that one ninety right. song. She talks to angels. Um, but this is the thing oh, yeah. is that, yeah. So, so what happens is that it, when you, when you're reverential, then you're making sure that y you allow what's in front of you to become, to, to be, and not just necessarily do. And that's actually, I think why, like when you look at a Mr. Rogers, you say, wow, Mr. Rogers, just let the person in front of him be who they really were. And that was actually the, the fruit of his discipline was a reverential attitude. Um, because, because mm -hmm. in the movie, you can tell, like, he's like, you know, sometimes I really get angry. And so I play the piano. And so I got to get the anger out in the piano. And I just play these notes. And so that I could, because what, what he's trying to do is he's trying to let being reveal itself. So as the disciples on the road to Emmaus with mm -hmm. Thomas Didymus, you, you have people and, and what are you ultimately experiencing, but a, a reverential spirit. Here are people who are going through what they're really going through. You have, you have Cleopas and what is Cleopas doing? he's um he's really frustrated he is Absolutely. experiencing he's experiencing what really was inside of him about his hopes and his the dashing of his hopes 
and he's really experiencing what he thinks and what he feels. And um, yes. and now what happens is is that he gets shut down when he goes and he's irreverent towards Christ. He says, "Are you the only?" Basically, paraphrasing, pardon me. Um, <laughs> are you the only idiot who didn't know what happened this weekend in Jerusalem? Which is ironic like, because he's literally the only person on earth now who knows that the resurrection has happened. He's the only one who knows. Actually, the other, the women saw him that morning. So like he, he's the only oh, one true, who true, really true. Actu- actually Mary knew did, yeah. what took place. Yeah, right. um, he's the only one who really knew. And yeah. so, so, and, and it's only at that moment that Jesus decides to shut him down. He's like, he's <laughs> like, um, Hey, you fool, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke and taught. Yeah. And, and, and he's, he's going to break down for him. He's, he, he actually, he shocks him. He kind of breaks him out of this kind of em- emotional, intellectual stupor that he's in. And he's like, and this is actually an interesting thing, is that when we're really in an intense place, um, emotionally, it's hard to get back into rationality. So, and oftentimes like what we need to do is we need to actually begin to think again because um, our feelings oftentimes flow from our thoughts and Mm -hmm. our feelings are are great um, uh, litmus tests for to understand what we're actually thinking. So, um, and, and, and what we've decided to do with our passions, because our passions are always going to happen. So yeah. what are we going to do? And we're, we're, we're thinking about what we're feeling. So he brings them in and he gets them thinking again about Psalm 16, about, uh, all, and starts to break down yes. the key to, to actually thinking about what's taking place within the story so that their attitudes and uh, specifically the reverential attitude can change. And if you notice that when he starts talking, there's something about what he does that they get quiet and yeah. there, and he's, and, 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 and so much so that they kind of turn to each other and they say, were our hearts not burning on the road as he started to speak about what actually took place in the scriptures. And they're like, yeah, that was awesome. And yeah. they're like, oh my goodness you know what, we actually got shocked into a reverential experience again to experience the, the scriptures as the revelation of the heart of a person. As we say, if you invoke the Father, as we read in First Peter, if, if we invoke the Father, then, you know, look and be reverential towards yourself, towards God, for your, towards neighbor, towards creation. Get, get quiet again and let it to be revealed because when it happens, all of a sudden those keys that were being handed on by Peter, by Jesus, all of those things um, actually become useful for us to be able to have a relationship with God that is not necessarily mediated by another human being. But I mean, Jesus as human being, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. With, with all the yeah. subtleties of the divine and human nature of Jesus Christ, like that, that we actually get to have a relationship with that one and with the Father and to invoke his name and to have these things and to be able to put them together. Peter's not the only one who's having this experience as they're in the upper room, as they're going through these 50 days. It's it's the whole of the community who are of heart, one heart and one mind that Jesus just gets us into this place to go. Oh, I mean, Scott, you and I were talking before the podcast began about how um, th- this time has actually a- afforded us a deeper reflection about what's actually took place within our lives yeah. uh, over over time and over history and over 
um, the, the, the recent days of sufferings and the, the past days of sufferings and the good things of the f of, of family and relationship. Like it's actually like these days have led to a reverential spirit. And that's like what the disciples on the road to Emmaus ultimately are about for me is to discover what does it mean to be reverent towards the work of God in a real way, no matter what is actually taking place, because whatever is going on in your life, you can become reverent towards it and discover the work of God in it. There's a, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, the really striking juxtaposition for me, and I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, but as you pointed out, um, Mary Magdalene did have Jesus appear to her that morning. And I, I don't know, and, but and, I don't see... And actually, Mary, the wife of Clopas, there were two women who went to the tomb, and Mary was one of them. Well, but... The, and that's One what, of the disciples. I wonder about that, because in John, it only says that he appears to Mary Magdalene. She, yes, she was there early on, and then Peter and John run to the tomb, and then it says they go home. And it points and then, out that and, Mary Magdalene stays. Well, and then if you notice that... Um, uh, Cleopas said some women yep. came to yep. us. And I think it's his who... wife. <laughs> right, exactly. Because totally. she, she was at the foot of the cross. We know that for totally. sure. Totally. We know from that John for 19. sure. And we know, I think it's safe to say that Mary, the wife of Cleopas, went to the tomb with Mary Magdalene. I think that's probably true. But it does seem to say only Mary Magdalene. So I guess my question is, again, and we're putting some puzzle pieces together. I, I can't imagine that Jesus looked different to Mary Magdalene than he did to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so Mary and Cleopas don't recognize him. They don't recognize the risen Lord. Mary Magdalene... because yeah, Mary Magdalene thought that it was the gardener. At first, but it, it doesn't take much for her to realize. She's like, oh, Rabbanai. because, I mean, I just, and again, I know I'm speculating a little bit, but it tells me that there is a reverence that Mary Magdalene is approaching the situation with that at least Cleopas and maybe Mary, the wife of Cleopas, don't have at that moment. Like you said, because they have put this sort of intellectual block, right? They have talked themselves out of it. And that disallows that reverence, which is actually seeing who is in front of them from taking place in a way that Mary Magdalene, it just takes a little bit less time, <laughs> right? For her to be like, right. oh. And I don't know, it doesn't, right. not to favor one over the other, but it just shows the the disposition actually matters because it actually that's what allows us to see and again we're told the story of cleopas and mary because praise be to god god he he literally walks for seven miles with them so to open their eyes so to remind all of us who have these mental blocks he's like no it's cool i'll go with you i'll accompany you but then there's the striving for which is the mary magdalene's of the world who are like no i see you i see you and i want to be that right yeah, what, what's what's really in it, interesting is it's six stadia. So so the way that it's it's actually mm. <laughs> the space is defined is six stadium lengths. It's like it's how we define football fields. Yeah. we're like, hey, that was they <laughs> they walked twenty five football fields with <laughs> Jesus, which is hilarious. such a it's such a funny measurement tool that I just love, which tells me that Luke is, is twenty five stadiums particular audience oh, in the indeed. midst of all of this he's a scientist um, so he's writing in one of those scientific ways <laughs> it's the best well i think that this is a, it's a it's a great way to actually just conceive of like are we actually being reverential towards our own experience yeah. are we being reverential towards the people that are in front of us and the creation and the time are yes. we reverencing what's in front of us because jesus is here to be discovered yes yes like right. that th 
like that like we always talk about Jesus you can find Jesus in the poor you can find oh you can find Jesus in yourself you can find Jesus in the heavens you can find him in scriptures you can find him in the liturgy Jesus is to be discovered everywhere acting in all things because he is the word from whom all things come and all things return he is the the most amazing beautiful reality he is God in a way that is so super abundant that we are so little but yet we can attain relationship with this grand grand beautiful person of the trinity who is in all things but we have to have a fundamental attitude well and what the the great thing that the road to emmaus shows us is that he'll also take the time to hang with us to let us have the opportunity to discover him right sometimes he'll walk the 25 stadiums just to give us enough time to to be like oh you are there (laughs) he'll be patient with our discovery even when we're slow to it Oh, it was 60 stadia. Sorry, pardon me. It was not six. Yeah, 60 stadia. So it's like 60 football fields. That's a lot of football fields, man. (laughs) Uh, Well, God bless you all. Um, You know, without sports being uh, done, may you walk 60 stadia (laughs) to uh, find Jesus um, as long as you have proper social distancing when you guys talk about scripture. Wear your mask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We will be back next week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hey, God bless you all. Bye-bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.